Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Trey Bourne. I'm Matthew Schultz. And I'm Daniel Moorbuck. Today on the show, Dune. Yay! I feel like there should be wind. We need a wind sound effect. A bunch of fanfare. Or or an ominous inner monologue. Yes. Like the David Lynch Dune film where... Everybody whispers like this, but you don't know what to say. Spice. Everybody could be talking about nothing. You could have done a drinking game with with that spice. Oh, the word's completely different for me now. I, I can't. <laughs> People talking about spices. It's 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 a whole other thing now. Yes, yes. Let's start uh, with the most kind of superficial element, which is. We have a cast member who's been sequestered, who has not read the source material, who has not seen the campy 1984 David Lynch film, nor the spectacular miniseries <laughs> that oh, came I'm out sure, in the last I'm sure. 10 years. Yeah. I'm sure I'm really missing out. <laughs> First of all, uh, the film itself has kind of uh, hit it out of the park. On Rotten Tomatoes, I looked today and it was 83% from critics and 90, 90% from the audience, you know, the fans, their fans, the fans ratings. Uh, although I've been watching some social media stuff and talking to people and just from watching it with my family, there are some folks who are completely lost because the original source material is so dense and kind of lore heavy. Matthews, our cast member, I should say, who has not seen or read any of the other stuff. Were you confused? So I'll definitely say that in the beginning of it, it was a lot in trying to kind of figure out what are, what are the different groups. I think that was a big thing that I initially struggled with. Um, about okay, there's this family slash house, and then there's this shadow organization, and then there's the people that are on the actual uh, Arrakis planet, and it was it was a lot at the beginning, and kind of keeping track of like the names of it was a lot of the uh, a lot towards while I was going, but it kind of got to the point where even if I didn't know specific names or anything, I still understood what the function of each of these things were. And as we kind of, I got at least personally, as it got to like the, like the middle, the middle act or the middle part of the movie. And it's, and it's pretty long too. Uh, I felt pretty like in the clear of what was going on largely. Yeah. I was, there was a little confusion on like who the, the Harkonnens were for me at the beginning as someone who isn't really exposed to any of it, but throughout it, I was able to really kind of sink into it and enjoy it completely and I think the biggest thing is like I went out of it. I'm like I want to know more about these groups. Like, what's the lore that I'm missing now that I understand? So, was there a way that that stuff kind of cued you? I, I think visually it did a lot of what maybe the novel did. I don't know. Did you notice that at all? Like you when you when you were when you were on Caladan, you knew you were on a water world, and you know. 
Yeah, oh, 100%. I feel like a big strength of this movie is its visuals. And I think seeing, like, this is what this group dresses like. This is what this group uh, group looks like. There's, like, the the one forest with them. Um, I'm sorry for not knowing the, the names of everyone, but uh, the, the, like, the Atreides family has, like, this very, like, militaristic outfit, like, clean cut. And then, like, the rival house, um, the one with the H name, Harkonnen, I'm sorry for butchering that, uh, has, like, that bald and, like, weird, like, tattoos and stuff on them so like the visuals were honestly a really great part of kind of indicating like who's who what's what what does this planet look like how does this planet function uh compared to it and both on like a direct narrative sense understanding what was going on but as well it just the visuals were just stunning like the outfit design was was amazing and like really made things clear and like distinct i think i I don't know if, if i'm remembering right I think they only tagged the planets once, and then if you went back, you didn't really uh like if if Paul remembers Caladan, um he remembers it, and it's not tagged with you know we don't know we're back there, we just see the kind of water even even with giddy prime, we only mm-hmm. see the the graphic or the text once, and then the visual carries it sort of thing. am I right? Mm-hmm. I think I'm definitely missing out on. A level of the lore that I'm just not privy to knowing that's there. Like, uh, like the intricacies of any planet that's besides Arrakis is kind of uh, unknown for me on like an in-depth level. And I, I'm not sure exactly how much of the book, uh, how much of the movie, the this first movie is covered in the book, what point of the book that goes to. So there's certain things that are definitely a little bit unclear for me especially in that like really big world building sense i think i mean this is a little a little bit more in depth and trey and daniel can kind of back me up here or disagree but i feel like a lot was lost about like thufer and dr huey the the betrayer we we don't really get much about them and i think most people who are watching this as just a standalone piece are really not getting that Thufer is a mentat and he's supposed to have all of these kind of powers and that's all just not addressed, right? I would I would 100% agree with that because th- those are the two things actually that like uh, in my, you know, post uh, movie experience, internet browsing were the two biggest things. I'm like, oh my God, I completely like witched that because I knew that the the one guy had some like like mental powers, something like that, and that's the Mentat, I believe. Um, but like the the name of that and like it, and how that works or where is this magic or is this like something else? Like that kind of stuff is confusing to me too. And with the doctor, um, like I understood it like in the scene, but I think there was like kind of maybe like an emo- emotional oomph or like something more in depth that I was kind of missing out on with that betrayal. Yeah, what'd you think, Trey and Daniel? about that those two in particular i don't know how they could have done it and not gotten bogged down because that's i think what matthew's struggling with is i think the struggle anytime anyone tries to adapt Dune is you know how to not get bogged down in the mythology for instance you know they showed two men tats and showing that they are different than the rest of um you know, everyone else, you know, and, and there's some, some sort of advisor. And I think the rest of it is something you just kind of have to piece together. Huey, I think, you know, it was obvious that he was, he had a backstory 
and that he betrayed them and he was a loyal subject. So to me, that was kind of okay. I, I don't know. I, I understand how it can be confusing, but just for the overall s- scope of the whole movie, I think they had to let some things go or at least just leave it unsaid a little bit. I think you're right. But as far as the the doctor, the traitor goes, I think it needed one more scene with him just, you know, being ter- caretaker to the family and doing his his doctor duties for for like Matthew said, the emotional umph. I don't need this character's backstory. I just need to be reminded that he's still a character. Yep. The M Tats were Having had the knowledge, I thought that was a really elegant scene. I was like, oh, cool. Everybody's got it. It's a human calculator. And I'm like, "Mm, no, not everybody's got it. Yeah, I think it's that, and I agree with you 100%, Daniel. If there's any complaint that I had, it is that Huey becomes a just a plot device. He's not even a character in this film. Yeah, And he's at least a character previous in the film, and he's definitely a character in the novel, and they gave that up for uh, moving the plot along in a film that's half, right? Half of the half of the book. You have to sacrifice something, and if you're going to sacrifice something, maybe it's him because he's gone anyway. He's going to die. Yeah. I think making him more of a character maybe makes that scene where uh, Duke Leto is facing off against the Baron, makes it a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced. But uh, making him too much of a character takes away from the gravity of that scene between the two leaders, maybe. According to Jason Momoa, there's a cut, an extended, extended cut that's like between four and six hours long. Wow. So I would imagine... There's probably another scene with the doctor. Yeah. I'd be very interested to see that that cut, but I would only imagine that you'd get that particular character fleshed out and maybe them M-Tats. The M-Tats are so cool to me because it, and it also goes into, I don't know if, I really thought that they did this well was to really kind of subtly show that there are no computers a, at all and everything is so analog. Yep throughout and there's a whole backstory to why that is mm-hmm. and i've seen several articles online apparently people were asking questions that really resonate with people like why, you know why aren't there computers and then obviously that leads to well there were men tats because who were basically human computers and there was a big fight between ai and robots back in you know thousands of years ago and that's why they can't have uh, computers. I can't wait to see the uh, the navigators of the spacing game. I know. In part two, the flipper people. Matthew's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? What? <laughs> what am I looking out for? <laughs> we got to see them in the first film early on, uh, right? Yeah. And so maybe maybe this is a good segue yeah. to the to the David Lynch version. How the two compare. I did like, for example, the. Dr. Huey being, Dr. Huey, I think it is, being more of a character, you know. I thought he was a weird choice then. I mean, he'd come, in, he'd come off of this big success that was the Elephant Man. And so he, he was a bit of a darling, right, in terms of Hollywood. And so this is his shot at the kind of big, big picture, you know. And I... I was reading before the show, 
uh, this film made Blue Velvet possible uh, because of the connections he made with regard to this film. He, he ended up getting Blue Velvet, which is his consider, considered by many his masterpiece. Well, Mulholland Drive. I think Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive is really, really good. Yeah, I've taught yeah. that. It's it's phenomenal. Um, uh, but uh, he said he kind of learned a lot from it. And he'd also said that on the table at this time was, believe it or not, re- Return of the Jedi was something that he passed on in order to... Could you imagine really? a Star Wars film by David Lynch? <laughs> David Lynch. <laughs> Uh, no, George Lucas would have just said, no, nope. he would have cut the cord. He, had, he offered it to him. Yeah, Lucas supposedly had offered it to him. That's crazy. But maybe he didn't really know what he was getting himself into. Oh, I have no doubt he offered it to him. I just think that it, once he saw what he was <laughs> yeah. going to do, he just said, no. Master Yoda, is, is Darth Vader my father? And then he goes into like interpretive dance <laughs> to answer the question or something. Just one of those scenes like Eraserhead with, with Yoda and the, the camera kind of shaking. <laughs> shaking violently yeah. while yeah. the bass blasts through your ears. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it compare? How does it compare? Does it? Oh, come on. I, I loved the visuals in, in the new movie. Mm-hmm. But one, one's concession that I have to make and for my money, I, I like the 2020, but I think David Lynch and even uh, Jodorowsky, what I think they got right is Dune should be a little weird. It should, like, yeah. It should be like offset, not grounded. Mm. Um, it's supposed to be foreign to us in, in a lot of ways, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying that 2020 was not weird enough yes well wow okay i loved i loved it personally but if i'm going was this a was this a sufficient adaptation i think the 2021 film ought to have been a bit weirder like you look at the ships you look at the mtats you look at the costumes that doesn't make you go what is going on (laughs) the lynch film did that to me the lynch film was so Campy, though. That was the only thing. Like the Baron character was just so over the top and ridiculous. And to me, the Baron character, like in this one, he was that was just so creepy. And even the shapes of the ships this time around, they seem so foreign. And no, no, wait, wait, wait. Before you get to the ships, did you get Marlon Brando as Kurtz at all? Because I, I was, yeah, I was feeling that. You know, hell yeah, hundred percent. Oh, yeah. He totally, I mean, he was doing an imitation. I yeah. put his hand on his bald head at one point, like yeah. Kurtz did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. totally. I'll, I'll say they didn't make very esoteric or weird choices when it came to casting. I think for me, the original Dune, you were like, Sting? Really? Okay, I'm in. You know, <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. And I was like, that's the one thing this Dune missed was Sting. Sting, yeah, that's Fade Routha. But I think they chose. Is it Kyle MacLachlan? Is that the? Is that the Paul Atreides from the David Lynch? Yeah, yeah. They chose him because he was obscure at that at the time. There, you had Sean Young, but there was not an all star cast the way we get we got here. It wasn't very daring, right? I mean, these are all the darlings of Hollywood that are on this project. No, I would completely agree, and I I think 
that it's it's interesting the actors that they are using because they're these darlings and i think timothy chalamet is like the one of the defining like leading men in hollywood right now and having him as your paul is gonna make a lot of people interested in like the whole they'll watch the movie then maybe they'll they'll want to oh i want to know more about this part of the book and then they'll get all into that lore and like not only is it like a sufficient like actor to serve your role but like it's Zendaya, Jason Momoa, Timothy Chalamet. These are names that get people to care about a project. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it definitely, uh, there were some choices made to sell tickets. There, is, there was a former student of mine who said, you need to see this in a movie theater. I didn't. You know, I watched it in my basement. I, I, I would say, I mean, I'm a big fan of movie theaters mm-hmm. and that whole uh, format and the experience, mm-hmm. but uh, your mileage will vary. I think if if you are the type of person to say this or that should be seen in a theater, Dune should be seen in a movie theater. If you're like, look, I'm just trying to watch a screen and get the story, then and I don't imagine much of anything really matters in that regard. Right. I'd say Downton Abbey, you don't need to see it. But I saw on the big screen. But, you know, I did see Dune and the, on the IMAX. Uh, I went to see it. And it blew me away. I mean, the, yeah. the visions and the, especially yeah. the sound. The sound to me was so amazing. Especially the uh, the voice. Uh, what's the army? The secondus? Oh, the, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the Sardaukai. The Imperial Army. Yep. Yeah, I mean, those voices and that chanting and that whole world was, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen anything this weird visually and the, the whole just sensory experience. I was like, I don't think I've ever experienced this. So I don't think I would have gotten that that effect. Yeah, shout out for the score. Yeah, the score was I'm amazing. just ama- I'm just imagining having a heated discussion with someone where they're trying to convince you that you have to see the Downton Abbey movie in an IMAX, you know, <laughs> the dresses are it's so not the same experience at TV. You can't see how beautiful lady Mary is. <laughs> can't see all of right her pores, place. all of her beautiful pores. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think there's some love for the 1984 David Lynch movie. It, it isn't a love for the sandworm <laughs> scenes or I think he was oh, running out of money. Right. Are the shields yeah. like you know the shields yeah. that they the, use? The were so bad. It looked like a yeah. video game, like real yeah. boxy. You know, it was horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was awful. It's like uh, he watched Tron one too many times in in the eighties. <laughs> right. <laughs> right from right from Flynn's arcade to Arrakis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we do have to talk about, uh, we don't have much time left, but we do have to talk about the book. If you can talk about the book Dune in 10 ish minutes. Um, here's a book, by the way, here's a book that was first published in Chilton's or, or not in Chilton's by Chilton's, which anyone who's old enough to know is a series of books to fix your car. You know, if you had to fix your 1986 rabbit. He went to the store and found a Chilton's manual for the Volkswagen rabbit. Right. And the guy who accepted it, edited and published it was fired because because it didn't earn much money. (laughs) Um, And then slowly kind of like Moby Dick, 
you know, slowly it started to gain some notoriety. It won the first Nebula, by the way, in 1966. Oh, interesting. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really expensive when it first came out. I think it was the equivalent of like $45 to buy the book. Not a lot of people were rushing out to buy it. But now it's a book that has sold over 20 million, 20 million copies. Um, so it is in the, you know, the true kind of nerd sphere. It is the kind of Star Wars. It is the kind of epic uh, answer uh, to the Lord of the Rings uh, in print. And so uh, what do we think, those of us who've read it, which is three of us here, what do we think about the way the book took care of the source material? Or didn't. How the movie took care of the or source the, material. Yeah, how the movie took care of the source um, Trey, you want to go first on this? Do you have a thought? Yeah, sure. I thought it was reverent enough. I mean, again, I think that it could have easily just gotten so bogged down in minutia that is cool minutia that people who really love the books love. And I think that they could have really gotten bogged down in it. Um, and he decided to reference some things and kind of skim over it to give people, you know, like me enough, you know, enough bait, you know, to keep coming back. Um, you know, hopefully that they'll explore some, like the Mintats, you know, that's just something to explore. I, you know, that's the type of thing I think is really cool or why there are no computers or why, um, you know, why is he a savior? What now, what are these, which people like what, what are yeah, they trying yeah. to do? And what's the backstory of the Baron? Why is he um why is he powerful, but he's able to float around, you know, what happened to him and um all those things that we know what happened. We know why, you know, he's injured. Um, but you know, they did enough to want you to come back and you know, especially for um people who who have never seen it before, maybe they'll be you know, maybe their interest will be peaked a little bit. And then people who do know, at least they'll say, well, at least they referenced it and maybe they're going to deal with it more in the next movie. I thought they did a good job. I agree. And this might be heresy to say about a adaptation of a seminal piece of beloved sci-fi, but I, I enjoyed the adaptation more than I enjoyed the book. And I thought pretty long on why that is. And Herbert came from journalism. So he was a really good technical writer. And when you read Dune, and he's gotten flack for this for like decades, like his prose. He's also a speech writer, by the way, which, which kind of plays into what I think what you're about to say. Go ahead. Yeah, but he, his prose is not particularly um, flashy, right? He, he, he tells you what you need to know. He tells you what's in the room. He tells you... Uh, the nouns and the verbs with minimal adjectives. And it's, it's, he's a very, very good writer in a technical sense. It's just, it's unadorned and it's not uh, like Oscar Wilde purple kind of prose. So the aesthetics are not necessarily there for people who like that, that flash in the pan. The film, on the other hand, I think really, really fills that void visually and audibly. It's just amazing. So I think it took the same story, trimmed the fat on it, and elevated the aesthetics of the story. And I think that's why it really clicked with me. I would kind of agree. I would kind of disagree. I do think he's a pro stylist or was a pro stylist in that 
in the in the Henry Jamesian sense of being a pro stylist, I see him as a uh, an heir to uh, psychological realism, that where you get what's going on inside a character's head by the detailed description of action, the way someone moves about a room, where culture is given to us through the artifacts that are described, and so on and so forth. So I do think there's a certain prose style there. Oh, sure. Although his sentence structure is far more simplistic than James, who can go on and on. I think they made some obvious choices in some of the things that they took out from the book. Having This, this might occur in part two. I would doubt it, though. The Baron having young boys drugged so that he can take advantage of them. I think even the hint of it is probably out of bounds because it paints him as evil for being homosexual in some ways. And I think that's kind of intended in the book, this taboo-ness of him and his sexual proclivities and, and stuff that's supposed to make him more of a, of a more of a monster, um, not just the drugging. So there are some things from the book that I think are uh, filtered out that probably should be filtered out, but I, I'm not on the same page in terms of I think the film was better. I think the film was different. I think it was eye candy in ways that even the, the Lynch film tried to be and didn't succeed. Would I see it again? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah I've already watched it like four times on HBO, just with subtitles and yeah, everything else. I, I just really, I really love the movie, but I, I don't think it beats the, the book to me is just almost like a sacred text, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I did, I think it was a lot better than the yeah, I do too. I mean, I don't even think it's in the same universe. I, I thought that the visuals and the sound and everything was incredible, but to me, the book will always be kind of a sacred text. Now, what I understand is he's going to do a trilogy and, you know, pick up on the second part and then do Dune mm-hmm. Messiah. Now, I, I, it, it really dropped off for me after the first Dune. Mm-hmm, yeah, I read the next two, and it really dropped off dramatically. Well, he wants to do a trilogy, but the, this, the second film is the only one green lit, unfortunately. Oh, the second film as in part two of Dune? Part two of Dune, um, but Warner Brothers has never been known for being a, a studio that takes massive risks, so... They're very cautious studio, so I, I, I can't imagine they're going to green light anything beyond that at the time. I think that, um, well, I know that the second book, Children of Dune, was the first, it was the first uh, science fiction book that was New York Times bestseller in both hardcover and paperback. So there's a bit of a pedigree there in terms of the, the source material, but it was a different age. One of the things I thought a lot about before this podcast was everyone out there is saying that, you know, Dune is supposed to be the answer to the Lord of the Rings. And there's a pro there's it's problematic in terms of the way the film is lengthy. And some people talked about the length of Lord of the Rings. A lot of people talked about it, but, but there was an, I think in some ways there's enough action to carry that the, all three of those movies. And you don't really get that here, do you? I mean, it's it's more of the political intrigue. And I, I think that's harder to film. I think it's going to be way hard to film. Yeah, if they do, I, I think they'll 
do a good job. Um, there's enough in there that they can have enough action in a second one, but if they do a third one, I think it'd be really hard. Yeah, it's hard to make it epic when you're in a thopter with uh, two characters using the voice, and that's going to take 10 minutes. You need a big pitched battle. And the film doesn't really focus on the Harkonnen Sardukai invasion at all, you know, and, and I would say rightly so in the same way that, you know, we have these, we have battle after battle between orcs and dwarves and men and elves in throughout Lord of the Rings to keep us, you know, to keep, uh, keep us on the edge of our seats. And we kind of knew what was going on. I mean, it's a pretty Lord of the Rings. They're they're walking, and they're walking, and they're walking, yeah. and they're walking, yeah. and then they find yeah. it, and then they walk, yeah. and then they walk, and then they walk. So it's pretty easy, pretty easy plot there for Lord of the Rings. So yeah, with this one, they you have genetic modifications and things like that. A, a friend of mine who's a big fan of the Lord of the Rings and Dune books said, "Like imagine Fellowship." ended after they got out of Rivendell mm. and then you had to wait two years for <laughs> for them just to get to the rest of part one and I was like yeah that's a really accurate they just left Rivendell roll credits uh that's where I kind of felt with it towards the end of the movie I was like I'm like, okay two hours 30 minutes I'm ready for it to start now because <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, it set up a lot of great stuff and it's not gonna wait two years to see the rest of it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I've managed to, you know, for how long it's been out, I've managed to avoid all spoilers for it whatsoever. So I have no idea where it's going at all. So speaking for people in that camp, it's like, oh, two years, come on. And then there's probably going to be even more. If you ended Fellowship after Rivendell, you would still get the culturally most important part, which is the meme Oh, second breakfast, not second breakfast. You do not just walk into Mordor. You right? do not walk across Arrakis. <laughs> you have to do your shimmy dance. Yes. So the sandworms don't hear you. Yes. It's, yeah. it's a long wait until October, 2023. <laughs> Final thoughts. Do we have any? See it? Don't see it? See it for sure. I really liked it. I loved it. See it. Uh, 100% see it. I, and and uh, the director said that he's never done a director's cut, so we all have to badger him to do a director's cut of this movie because I really want to see like six hours <laughs> until they just leave Rivendale. Can you imagine like a legit 10-hour cut of just Dune Part 1? That would be a trip, man. I want, like, we need to badger this director. All the stuff's sitting there, you know. <laughs> release it to the people i think yeah i think we should wait until uh they federally legalize pot and then <laughs> we should go with the, with the director's cut of of dune and then Six we hours. watch it on 3x speed <laughs> yeah with the audio turned all the way up yeah on that thought the pub is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studio at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office. We post new episodes every Monday, and you can listen in wherever you download your favorite podcasts. You can also find us at straylightmag.com, where we publish news stories, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at The Pub Podcast on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. <laughs>